to the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jamie, and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. It is so wonderful to have you back. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Eli Giroux, and he is a board-certified physician in internal medicine. He was a hospitalist at a large medical center in Houston, Texas from 2013 until early 2022. As a hospitalist, his job was to take care of acutely ill patients admitted to the hospital for a myriad of medical conditions. In his early 30s, he wrestled with a host of health issues, including chronic back pain, high blood pressure, prediabetes, and was 35 pounds overweight. Sounds kind of similar to my story. After being frustrated with conventional approaches, he took a radical departure from mainstream medicine and used lifestyle to completely reclaim his health. After his personal experience and realizing the most patients who end up back in the hospital are often metabolically sick, he shifted his professional interest to focus on nutrition as his main tool to combat chronic metabolic disease, primarily obesity and type 2 diabetes. He currently coaches patients how to change their lifestyle and helps them reverse their chronic diseases and come off their medications. Dr. Giroux, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jamie. I'm uh, honored to be here. For those of you listening who don't know Dr. Giroux, I encourage you to go to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media channels and follow him because I've been following him since last year when somebody put me onto his content and it's just fantastic and excellent. And I am always looking for allies here in the health space to fight the fight the good fight because we are uh, we're up against a big battle when it comes to metabolic disease for sure. Unfortunately. Yeah. So tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Obviously people know you work as a hospitalist, but why why medicine? Like, take me back to your early life. Like, what inspired your career yeah. in medicine in the first place? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm from Lebanon, so I'm a, you know, a foreigner in a sense. Uh, so, as a kid, I always was interested in being a, a doctor for whatever reason. Uh, everybody called me doctor, and also my grandmother, my grandparents used to live with us, so the doctor would pay house visits, and he would come and the portable EKG, the blood pressure machine, the medication delivery. So I was fascinated by it at the time. So from early years, I remember I used to even measure my mother, grandmother's blood pressure with a manual cuff when I was eight or nine. And I would- Is this in Lebanon or in the US? Yeah, that's in Lebanon, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I love to do that. So every night I would just take the blood pressure cuff and measure it and uh, adjust. And I didn't adjust anything. I just knew the numbers. Uh, yeah. And then as I grew up, uh, it kind of became more and more, uh, uh, you know, I was more confident that's what I wanted to do. I just liked the idea of taking care of, uh, of patients uh, or, or helping people. Uh, so I went, I had an opportunity to, to immigrate to the United States in the uh, late 90s. Uh, I came here after high school uh, and I did undergrad in New York City. Uh, I did biology major, which in hindsight, it was a big risk because I didn't have back plan B. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't, I, I didn't want to teach. So people do engineers and different majors. That exact thing happened to me. I was very interested in nutrition and exercise science. And they, at my college, I was going to be an exercise science major. And I show up on the first day and I'm filling out this paperwork. And they said, we, uh, we have gotten rid of your program. And I was like, what do you mean? Wow. And they're like, you, you need to pick a new major. I'm like, pick a new major. And I had this moment of panic and I was like, okay, I guess I want to do biology. And then I went home and I'm like, what am I going to do with a biology yeah. degree? If I yeah. don't get into medical school, yeah. I'm going to be like, 
studying petri dishes all day like i just had this like vision in my mind of like a biology nerd and <laughs> yeah exactly I, I mean in lebanon they go to medical school like seven year program right after high school which oh, is crazy so you have like basically know yeah but but it's crazy to think about you're like 17 18 you have to know what you should be doing at, and then commit yeah. to medical school at that time but i didn't know better i thought that's what people did so I was like, why, why am I doing eight years? I could do it seven years in Lebanon. But I figured I had to do undergrad. There's a, few, I, there's a few programs like that in the United States. They're yeah, few and far between. But yeah, there's a couple. Few, very selective, right. So, but I had biology because I didn't know better. Uh, and then there was no plan B. And it was, it was very nerve wracking when I was taking the MCATs. Uh, English was still uh, kind of uh, rough on me uh, at the time. Uh, but th- I did that and I uh, met, made it to medical school in SUNY Buffalo, New York. Uh, so that was 2004 to 2008. Uh, so it was a good time. Uh, again, just wanted to be a doctor. When I was applying to residency, I applied everywhere. And uh, I came to Houston, a master to Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, and then I did internal medicine residency there, here. Then I wanted to be a nephrologist. I thought that would, the physiology is cool. Uh, so I did fellowship also in kidney disease and nephrology. I never ended up practicing. I got board certified in it, but for simple reasons, as finance, like the, the, uh, the salaries didn't make sense to me. It was a lot of work. It was very little, uh, relatively speaking, and working at the hospital was going to be more uh, income in less time. It was like seven days on, seven days off. Yeah. And in the county hospital, I stayed at Baylor because I knew the system and it was a good program. And the county is always fun to see all kind of cases. So started there. That was 2013. Thinking I'll go back to nephrology, but never went back. Uh, and I went to kind of grew up. I grew in the uh, program as an associate program director after a few years. Switched uh, hospitals to Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. Started a program there with a, as an associate director, and then grew the group to about 40 doctors. Uh, but during that time. So I'll take you back in college. When I first moved to Lebanon, I was lean, fit, like I didn't care about anything. But between college, by the time I graduated from medical school in those eight years, I had gained those 35 pounds slowly. And my waist was increasing, chronic back pain, sluggishness. It just kind of didn't feel good. Uh, and then after I started, right around the time I started as a hospitalist, my back would just give out. Um, extreme low back spasms or be, you know, incapacitated for a couple of weeks, sometimes sleeping on the floor. Uh, I even had a cane at one point because I couldn't stand straight. It happens for thirties at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Silly reasons. I could be putting pants on or could be trying to play tennis or going to the gym, uh, doing some sort of, uh, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, tire, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, basically jumping and doing all that stuff at the gym, trying to be healthy. It didn't yeah. work out. I, I went to physical therapy. I went to rehab doctors. I got x-rays. There was nothing structurally wrong. Um, and I was just gaining weight. Uh, so at that time, uh, I, I, I thought nutrition didn't matter, really, just calories. Uh, I was gaining weight and I was a doctor. So I think there's something wrong here. I watch my calories, I exercise, but my belly keeps growing and my blood pressure started to develop. I thought it was genetic. My dad has high blood pressure since he was like 34, 36. So I assumed it was genetic. Uh, so it was 140s. 
I thought it's a matter of time for get on medication. At that time, 2014, 2015, um, I came across the Whole30, uh, Melissa Hartwig, uh, the Whole30 program. That's how my journey started. Did a Whole30 uh, for one month, I then added another month, and I lost 15, 20 pounds in those two months, and I felt like 80% better, amazing. Um, so I, w- I was really shocked by how good I felt. So I decided, well, I, I'm good now. Let me go back to my old lifestyle. And then my back pain came back and I didn't feel great. Uh, so I went back to it and I started looking into podcasts and social media just to kind of learn. And then I did paleo for a while. Then keto was getting popular, but I was so terrified of it. I was like, why would I, I mean, well, the idea of keto for me was eating a bunch of fat really. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, and very low car, but after a year or thinking about it, then I decided to dive into it in 2018, I think. I did that for a couple of months and uh, then I lost another 10 pounds. I was feeling great. My ketones, I was checking ketones with a finger stick. Uh, but then I started getting a keto rash. I think I was getting deep ketosis as so that was bothering me. Uh, so I heard somebody tell me at one of the conferences that I'm probably not eating enough protein which probably was true because I was doing like very traditional keto, very high fat, moderate to low protein. So I started switching, increasing the protein. I even went to carnivore for a few months and lost another five pounds. So over the years, I accumulated all these ways of every time I thought this is the way that I find some other tool to improve it, um, then fasting and all that stuff. So that's how I slowly kind of evolved and started to get really annoyed in the hospital. I see the food, I see the people sick, I see everybody uh, really getting worse and more medication. Uh, so I kind of checked out over time. I didn't care as much to be growing in the hospital medicine field and then COVID hit. And that's when I really uh, realized obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, all these people are the ones who are dying in the hospital. And I took care of, of a lot of uh, these patients. Um, and then during this lockdown, I started the side hustle. I figured, why not? Let me just start coaching online. Uh, and yeah. over a couple of years, I somehow kind of caught on on Twitter and I started Instagram and slowly started having more patients and clients. And eventually I just completely quit uh, the hospital. And now that's all I do. It never feels like work. It's always fun. Yeah. Tell me as you're going through this personal journey of figuring out the diet. And then all of a sudden these things start getting better. Your blood pressure is getting better. Your back's not hurting. Like these are things that you really can't deny. I mean, you know, people will say this is anecdotal evidence, you know, but as a physician, you know, I went through something very similar. And I, at one point I was like, wow, we really have it all wrong. And I think you kind of, you know, echoed that kind of just saying, I just became disinterested in traditional medicine because it really wasn't making people better. But tell me, you know, working as a hospitalist in the hospital, when you're going through this transition, people had to notice that you were losing weight and looking better. Tell me kind of that, that thought process or what did your colleagues think? Like, did you talk about this openly or did you try Uh, to implement this with patients in that hospitalist system? um, Multiple questions. So first, uh, people noticed when I was losing weight, like, Doc, you're losing a lot of weight. Uh, you know, are you okay? You look great. And I was like, tell them I'm just fixing my health. Colleagues, same thing. The ones I told them I was doing keto or Whole30, some of them joke or tease me. Uh, some of them became, you know, take it a little bit personal. And when I see me eat healthy or not eat, they feel judged. Uh, 
But overall, they were supportive. Some of them got on board. They started to do it with their own health. Uh, in terms of patient care, uh, as a hospitalist, you're not tied to seven-minute clinic visit, so it's easy. I can always go back. So I kind of became selective with the patients I have. If they're receptive, they really want to get better, I sometimes go back to their room, even often off the record. I don't record it. I, I would say discuss lifestyle changes, but in, in reality, I was actually describing to them what is diabetes, why uh, it's a dietary problem, how they can fix it. Um, and then uh, and a lot of them, I don't know. The thing is I couldn't tell if they follow through or not, but uh, some of them did. Sometimes I see them back and I say, Doc, I lost 20 pounds. Thank you for your help. And so that was started to motivate me. But the turning point was this lady with a, a transplant center uh, for liver transplant. So this lady had uh, liver cirrhosis from, well, it wasn't cirrhosis yet. It was a severe non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to the point where mm -hmm. she's getting confused, jaundice, almost cirrhosis, but they did a biopsy. It wasn't scarred. It was just inflammation. So it was reversible, but they were starting to work her up for liver transplant. And her husband at the time was there. He had quadruple bypass and he, he was desperate and she was a little confused. I told him, look, I can tell you something, not medical advice per se, but if what do you have to lose? Remove sugar, fructose, uh, don't touch the hospital food, just eat protein, healthy fats, uh, you know, stuff like that. Very basic. And I was following them for that week. So they took it to heart. They, they just stopped doing it. All of that stuff. I got off service. Uh, a few months later, I decided to check in. I emailed the husband. And that is when I started getting goosebumps. It's like, it's like, she's completely, her liver completely normal right now. She lost 30, 40 pounds. They're running every day. Uh, she's not on a transplant list anymore. And it was uh, this light bulb. It's like, I got words. goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These, these words that are people, you know, just, they were determined they didn't want a liver transplant. Uh, and she was completely confused for a week uh, in the hospital. That turned her life around and he got healthier and they became healthier. And that was a turning point. I was like, you know, this is what's more powerful than any drug I can prescribe. Um, there's, no, there's no cure for fatty liver disease unless you reverse it with diet. In the transplant, you see people come back with fatty liver disease and the transplant liver after a few years. So nothing changes. Um, so that was one of them. Diabetes, obesity, all that stuff. So that's how I started uh, to shift. Uh, what are you asking me one more question? Yeah, yeah, I mean, just your colleagues' perceptions and your patients' perceptions of, like, trying to implement these things. I mean, I can't even – I just can't wrap my mind around this that I have seen very similar stories of people who are just so metabolically broken and they just watched an Instagram reel or they yeah. saw a YouTube video and all of a sudden they were like, well, I guess what do I have to lose? I'm going to try this. And they have these amazing stories of just – and it's like they've been stuck in this hamster wheel for so long. And so yeah. sometimes I just don't understand in medicine how, I mean, I really truly believe most doctors went into medicine because they, they, they love taking care of their patients and they truly want their patients to be healthy. But then you walk through the hospital and everything, you know, all your patients were admitted for a variety of diagnoses, right? right? right. But what right. you're seeing is like all of them have diabetes, all of them are obese. Like how we as like the healers can't give them tools to reverse these conditions or, or even just be so ignorant to believe that it can't be, you know, yeah. fixed or reversed. Like it's just mind blowing to me. I think we lost medicine, lost touch with 
I guess, uh, what medicine is. And we really be became focused on drugs and pharmaceuticals. Uh, probably the generation before me or before that, that we really lost that touch. When we didn't have a lot of medicine at our disposal, we really focused on health and nutrition. I mean, if you think of type 2 diabetes before insulin, well, there wasn't much, but even type 1 diabetes, people were using dietary approaches to, to manage these things. And somehow we lost that. Doctors are just as unhealthy. I mean, you see, uh, I see them, what they drink and eat in the yeah. hospital. Uh, part of it, uh, the education system, we get brainwashed. Uh, for, I'll start by the thing. Everybody has good intention. Doctors want to help. Want to help you. They want the best for their patients. But they, we learn it in a way where we think it's only drugs, only progressive. It's not going to get better. I even hated chronic diseases. One of the reasons I didn't want to do primary care or I didn't really stick to nephrology because I didn't want to do those chronic diseases. I figured I couldn't do anything for them. But once I realized you can reverse it, I was like the most exciting field I can be in, uh, just to help people. But yeah, I think people lost, uh, I guess they lost hope. They don't think they have time. They also make assumptions that the patients are not going to change. Uh, there's so many different things. Uh, education, definitely. They don't teach us nutrition. Um, biochemistry, if you actually think about it, biochemistry makes sense that this lifestyle we follow you and I make, make more sense than what ends up being translating into dietitians and nutrition in the hospital. Yeah, I, think I definitely resonate with the personal reflection of, you know, us as doctors and in, you know, my social media, I have said this repeatedly, like we are just as human as our patients. And I really, just like you want to be the example for them and not just like the person that talks the, you know, talk and, and, and more walks the walk. But I think that you know, there was a time when I was in medicine and I had prediabetes and I had hypothyroidism and I'm sitting there telling patients, well, you know, clean up your diet and exercise more, uh, you know, but then you always finish it with like, yeah, you know, I know it's hard and I know it's, you've got kids and it's like you're, you're spoon feeding them all the excuses that you spoon feed yourselves because, yeah. you know, we always look through this lens, you know, which is our own vulnerabilities. And I think that you're totally right. Like doctors work long hours many times. Um, it's not rewarding. It's exhausting. Um, and it's just easier to write a prescription. Okay. Come back in 30 days and we'll check your blood pressure again. Okay. You know, let's increase your medication because the time it takes, I mean, I'm sometimes sitting there in the clinic room, staring at the patient and I'm going, they are so far out of touch with where they need to be. Yeah. This is going to take me, <laughs> this is going to take Weeks. me three hours. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> to just like, to like wrap their mind around it, you know? So it's like, and you're right. Doctors aren't, we're not taught about nutrition. We're not taught about any of these lifestyle things in which those are the primary interventions for like every single problem. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. Okay. So let's talk about a lot of times low carbon ketogenic diets, you know, people get on social media and they just say like, well, when it, if it's weight loss, it's just counting calories. And you kind of, you know, alluded that you had been in that mind frame before. Can you talk about what are like non-scale victories for people who are mm. doing like low carbon ketogenic diets? Yeah. Where do I start? Uh, how long do we have? <laughs> so, well, <laughs> it starts from skin, mood, uh, lifting skin, clearing up from different acne and rashes and eczema and psoriasis, you see that happen. Uh, mental clarity, uh, all these, uh, you know, people feel high energy, they don't need to nap, they feel rested. 
uh, gut issues kind of disappear, um, uh, anxiety, depression. I, I've seen all of that. Uh, acid reflux is a huge one, like uh, GERD that kind of also disappears. So a lot of people, they're feeling better in every other aspect before the scale moves. Uh, fatty liver melting away, diabetes, uh, you should gl blood glucose quickly uh, improving. Um, there's so many more autoimmune diseases. I saw, I've seen rheumatoid arthritis. And I mean, I don't yeah. deal with a lot of them, but I've seen uh, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, general pains that kind of completely disappear after a few weeks. Uh, hunger goes away, cravings go away. Uh, so, um, so what people didn't think they could do because they, they thought it requires willpower to control their calories, calories. Now they eat right and the calories take care of themselves because you're satiated, you're full. So, so many non-scale victories and the scale happens eventually sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think you kind of said you started with whole 30 and then did paleo and then started cutting out carbohydrates and then kind of increased protein. So there was this kind of gradual evolution of your, your diet. And I was very similar in that, uh, in that regard, but you know, I think people will say, okay, as long as they just cut out the processed foods and they're just eating a whole food diet, right? So talk to me about when you work with patients one-on-one, -on -one, you know, Whole30 versus paleo versus low-carb or ketogenic, you know, or carnivore, like where do you find that people are really the most successful? Uh, when I don't call it a diet of any sort, uh, I think I just tell people, look, the, you, you're sick because of this junk processed food. So the goal is to move back to natural whole foods. Uh, and then I told him I'm biased towards animal centric, uh, whole food diet, higher protein, lower carbohydrates and natural fats, however, come with the, with the diet. So I try not to label it. Something they, they try to label is this Atkins? Is this keto? Is this well? I told him, yes, you are in ketosis when you drop the carbs, but really I want to find a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, uh and then I call it carnivore for sure. When people have autoimmune diseases or they're really stuck and I go all the way, just only meat, that's, uh, where it is. But I try to remove these labeling for these patients because they have a hard time explaining it. When they take keto to their doctor, they freak out when they say, so I tell them like you're removing sugar processed, uh, most of the refined carbohydrates and eating more protein. Uh, so I try to keep it in that general framework to make it more uh, palatable. Yeah. I mean, a whole food diet can look like a whole bunch of different ways, yeah, exactly. right? They could be vegan. They could be carnivore. They could be <laughs> Mediterranean, right? Like they're yeah. still whole food diets. So, um, let's talk about if somebody is like, okay, I've got diabetes. They're listening right now. I've got diabetes. I'm 85 pounds overweight. I've got high blood pressure. What labs should do you think are kind of like the basic starting point for people to like check and, and know where they're at with their metabolic health? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one, you need a, something called the comprehensive uh, metabolic profile, which looks at your kidney function and liver function, because a lot of times you have fatty liver disease. You want to make sure that's okay. You look at your yeah, fasting glucose. You also get a hemoglobin A1C to see how bad the diabetes is, which is an average number for previous three months. I like to look at fasting insulin to see uh, how high they, how much insulin is requiring to control that glucose, especially if they're not uh, yet diabetic. Uh, I look at the inflammation and I like the CRP, generally C-reactive protein. I like the HS, high sensitivity CRP, it picks even, um, it's more sensitive. 
I look at vitamin D, I look at the uric acid is more of a recent thing. Uh, I realize it's, it's really a window to metabolic health uh, that may not show up otherwise. Uh, thyroid function, uh, what else? Uh, B12, a lot of, I'm surprised how many people are low on B12 mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, all these numbers, uh, I think kind of everybody should get them as kind of assess where they're starting from. Yeah. Let's talk about the lipid panel because. Oh, the lipid, sorry. Usually, I was new. Like the lipid yeah, panel is one of the uh, major ones. This is usually where patients come in and they said, well, I told my doctor I was on a ketogenic diet and my LDL cholesterol is 150 and they want to put me on a statin and now I don't know what to do. Can you tell people what happens with lipids with low carbon ketogenic diets? Yes. Yeah, so that's highly debatable. And I don't think it's going to be settled anytime soon when it comes to LDL, the bad cholesterol. Uh, but when, when you look at uh, the risk for cardiovascular disease and uh, state of metabolic health, it's really what's, what more correlates with health is uh, triglycerides and HDL. What I see on a low-carb diet is usually triglycerides just plummet. Uh, and then HDL, uh, HDL shoots up. And that's a good sign. Now, LDL can go sideways, can go up, can go down. It's really not predictable. Although the leaner people are, the higher the LDL that I see. Um, people worry. I get more questions about LDL than anything else. Um, and my answer to them, look, I can tell you my opinion. Uh, there's not enough science to say. But uh, generally, if you're metabolically healthy, LDL does not really correlate well with cardiovascular disease. Uh, so uh, you have to look at the whole picture uh, and then you yeah. make your judgment. I tell them, look, your traditional doctor is always going to be worried. And then meanwhile, they probably want to push the statin on, on you. Uh, I tell you, you, you can take it, but the benefit is very minimal. You can have a lot of side effects, including diabetes, uh, which is ironic. Uh, you can do other things to mitigate it. I like the calcium scan, coronary artery calcium scan. I tell them if your calcium is, uh, scan is very low or zero, you really don't have to worry about it. Um, but I told him it's unsettled science and there's research ongoing. Uh, David Feldman, I told him he's a, you know, uh, an engineer who's doing more research on that topic than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have a very vested interest in this because my own husband had an elevated coronary calcium scan at in his mid-30s. And his grandfather dropped dead at age 52. So some people may have seen a recent um, little reel that BioCoach showed. I haven't talked about it really on my podcast or or anything, but Dave Feldman, who uh, Dr. Giroux is referring to as an engineer who is studying this lean mass hyperresponder population. So people that do a low-carb ketogenic diet and the LDL goes up, and that's really the, the only isolated problem on their lab. So like what Dr. Giroux is saying is, it, fasting insulin is normal, fasting glucose is normal, triglycerides are low, HDL is high, A1C looks good, their blood pressure looks good. All of these things are normal. And the only problem that they have is this elevation in LDL, which has been really vilified as a major driver of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So uh, Dr. Giroux wasn't at Low Carb Denver, so I'll lead you guys on to a little bit of what Dave has started to discover. And I really think this is going to this is going to rip the Band-Aid off a little bit uh, on this conversation. So they enrolled 100 people into this trial. And um, there's going to be some pre-publication um, data that's coming out. So Dave really couldn't tell us everything at Low Carb Denver. Yeah. But what I'll tell you what, what he did tell us is the average age, it was about 55. And there was more men than women, which is a good thing because if you were just to 
pluck these people out of the population. You should, you know, a bunch of 55 year old guys, you should be able to find some atherosclerosis. Right. And, um, they, of course they all had low triglycerides. They all had like a really good average HDL. The average LDL of the hundred people was something like 256. So we're talking like high LDL numbers. Um, the average time they had been on the ketogenic diet was like four and a half years. And they were doing baseline, what we call CCTA scans. So even more advanced than a coronary calcium scan, you can actually see soft black. So they scanned these hundred people to start this trial last year, and they chose 15 spots in the heart. And then they gave each spot in the heart a score zero to three. So minimum, uh, lowest score you could get was zero. Highest score you could get was a 45. And Dave was kind of like pulling the audience. He's like, so we didn't know what we were going to find, right? Are we going to find really high scores and have to stop the trial totally? Are we going to find somewhere in the middle and not know what to do? And so out of these hundred people, almost all of them, hundred percent had a score less than 10, which is incredible, right? Yeah. So, um, this is really incredible that there's not even calcified plaque. There's not even soft plaque there. And these people have sky high LDLs. And this is very similar to a population of people that have familial hypercholesterolemia, but these people have abnormal lipid metabolism. So they do get atherosclerosis and there's little kids having heart attacks like at age five, right? They look very similar on paper, but the difference is in the metabolic health, like that the, that the metabolism is actually functioning correctly, even though the LDL is high. So for people listening, I just had to plug that in there because I haven't talked about it on any podcast yet. And I need to have Dave back on to talk about it after he finally publishes yeah. some of this stuff because it's going to, it's going to get a lot of talk, you know, in the, in the lipidology world. I think there's going to be a few doctors whose heads are, are spinning with this information, but, but I just want people to know that there are a population of people where LDL goes up and it, and it may not be necessarily um, a bad thing, but you have to look at the individual and what the risks are and, and, and all that. So that's really good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about the connection between salt and blood pressure, because when I was in medical school, I was told to restrict salt, definitely less than two grams a day because it causes high blood pressure. Well, I was told that in medical school and residency and fellowship and nephrology tra training, which is probably supposed to be like the expert in salt. Uh, in the hospital, heart failure patients, they always push for these two gram sodium. Patients always felt lousy. It, it, it never worked. I always believed it. I used to eat low salt. My dad used to eat low salt. Until uh, I realized that uh, the kidney actually has also insulin receptors, um, uh, and then it does one of its many functions uh, is drive sodium absorption, salt absorption through the kidney. So when it, when this insulin is running very high all the time, it's not a, in an imbalanced state. So you have more salt absorption, and to keep the same concentration, water follows. So you always have more fluid retention. As, and when you have more fluid in a, in a closed tank, your pressure going to go up. The other thing, insulin also works on the smooth muscles inside the arteries and your arteries may thicken or get stiffer. Uh, and that adds uh, to it as well. So, and as I work with clients, with myself, first of all, blood pressure drop. Even my dad, he was on six classes of blood pressure medicine over 28 years. When I, wow. a year and a half ago, six, I, six meds and you six couldn't classes, get it normal. Yeah. Six so, some of them are combinations. Yeah. Six classes. And it was still running one forties, one fifties. He wouldn't change his diet. He wouldn't change his diet. One, one time he was visiting me here. I locked him with me for five weeks and I completely put him on a basically very low carb, 
high protein diet. And just with me, within five weeks, I took him off two, three medication. But over a span of a year, he's down to one, uh, one blood pressure medicine. He's 69 now. Um, and he, he was on 28 years of high blood pressure. You'd think it's irreversible. So I think that last pill could be because of all the damage. I couldn't, I can't get rid of that last yeah. pill. But generally, uh, got from six to, and he lost, it's not like he lost a ton of weight. He, he wasn't severely overweight, but he lost like 20 pounds. It's not like a huge amount. Um, so basically, salt is not the cause of hypertension. I, with rare exception, some people are salt sensitive, but it's salt mm -hmm. retention. So I differentiate salt as a cause versus salt retention as a problem. And what drives salt retention is really sugar, carbohydrates, anything that's insulin. really keeps spiking that insulin uh, mm -hmm. keeps driving. And that's what, when you see people, they are on a clean diet and then they go a few days off the plant and they gain seven pounds, eight pounds. I mean, we've all done it on vacation. Yeah, we all do it on vacation. It's crazy. It's that fluid shift, uh, how you, uh, I mean, part of it is glycogen uh, increase, but also a lot of it, I think, is just insulin spiking, is ho holding on to fluids. And some people come to yeah. me like, wrist is swollen, their rings are tight. So, you know, there's fluid retention. So, from there, yeah, I remember, I remember when I was yeah. the year my husband and I were engaged to be married. I was planning my wedding, you know, and I was like trying to diet, just counting calories, like eating lean cuisine meals. I'm telling you guys, it was horrible. It was horrible. But it my parents, frozen. we went on like a family reunion, a cruise, like to an Alaskan cruise. And cruises, you guys, there's like amazing food everywhere. Like all you can eat unlimited. So my, my fiance at the time, my husband and I go on this cruise and we just eat like whatever we want. And I came home and I had gained, I went to a, a bridal dress fitting for my wedding dress. I had gained 12 pounds. I was yeah. gone less than seven days. Okay. Nice. It's obviously not seven pounds of fat, but tons of fluid retention because yeah, I mean, just all this like processed food and all this insulin. And I mean, the standard American diet is 50 to 60% carbohydrates. And then these yeah. processed foods, of course, have a lot of, you know, added sodium. I just, I don't know if you saw this, Dr. Drew's, the, uh, there was a JAMA article that came out just this last week that the American government now is trying to approve processed food manufacturers to use salt alternatives and they're, they're trying to encourage them to use so sodium salt alternatives in these, yeah. you know, processed I mean, foods. It's nothing surprises me. I mean, it's, it's sad because a lot of people, schools, nursing homes, the people who really need proper nutrition, they're getting, you know, uh, pigeonholed into following a really horrible diet. I mean, the other side of the salt is actually realize you actually need more salt when you're on a low carb diet. Uh, my, my dad had to eat a lot more salt. I eat a lot more salt. If I don't, actually, I feel lousy. So I get headaches and cramps. So a lot of people start realizing that uh, as well. So salt is important. Uh, but when you combine carb and salt, you're really probably making it worse. But generally, if you cut carbs, uh, you will fix the problem. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, you know, you're from Lebanon. Your parents still live in Lebanon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Give us a little bit of perspective between Lebanese diet versus American diet and also a, a compare and contrast with their medical systems. Oh, well, first of all, the, the American standard American diet has kind of made waves into the rest of the world. Uh, when oh, when I was growing country. up, food was basically... Uh, a lot of meat and chicken and uh, uh, lamb, uh, goat, a lot of dairy, a lot of vegetables, uh, tabbouleh, and a lot of beans as well. But generally, it was a 
very rich on, in protein and fats, olive oil. And bread was there, uh, but some of the old bread used to be thin and doesn't affect you the same way. Um, people, everybody it's not like of, American, everyone, I've never been to Lebanon, but people always talk about how like European bread is not like yes. they can go there and eat that bread and it's, it doesn't do the same things that American bread does. Exactly. And that's what when I'm growing up with the, the people in the class, in my class, where you see that overweight, they were, they would stand out. There would be a rare two, maybe three mm. max in the class. When I left, uh, and now I came back, I, when I left, McDonald's was starting to making it in, uh, junk food, like Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks. Now you start having, I didn't know what a donut it was or a muffin when I came to the U.S. Uh, back in 2000. But now everybody eats that. And so unfortunately, the diet has shifted and the kids and parents that work, for, I mean, a lot of parents are working and uh, the kids are starting to eat more and more junk food and you start to see childhood obesity uh, all that stuff. Wow. Now, the medical system is actually not good there. It's uh, there's a lot of there's no like uh, healthcare system. Some people are privately insured. It's very expensive, uh, relatively for people there. Uh, but uh, the, the focus is, is still medications and all that stuff. Diabetes, obesity is on the rise, but it's unfortunate because we used to be such a healthy uh, population. Yeah, yeah, um, I. I went down to South America to uh, Chile this last year and I was mind blown, like going through the downtown. I'm like, oh, there's Wendy's, there's yeah. McDonald's, yeah. there's KFC. I mean, it was just all the American places down there. It was like, I, I was just, I was mind blown. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, sad. it's, uh, it's like a cancer <laughs> spreading across the world. Um, talk to us about that. So obviously, you know, reducing carbs in the diet Obviously, you're a fan of higher protein, but you're eating a lot more fat than a standard American diet or this low-fat dogma that we've all been been told. Are there fats that people shouldn't eat? So if you look at the science, I guess the science is still debatable depending on who you talk to. But generally, I, I believe and I think there's enough information that seed oils and anything that's not natural, like animal fat is natural, olive oil and avocado oil, you squeeze a fruit. Uh, coconut oil, you squeeze something, you get natural fat out of it. That's, I think, is perfectly healthy. Uh, at worst, it's neutral. There's no evidence that saturated fats, the more you pull more uh, real research, you don't find any evidence of uh, detrimental effect. Uh, seed oils, on the other hand, these are highly processed, manufactured, require a lot of chemicals and solvents. They're unstable. They're, if you, I mean, omega-6, when in high amount, it can be pro-inflammation. Uh, and that can, can contribute directly, indirectly to uh, insulin resistance. Although it's not a carbohydrate, it can really affect that in the liver. So uh, I choose to believe that there is, first of all, it doesn't taste good. Uh, it's highly unstable. I recommend against seed oils in general and stick to olive oil, avocado oil, coconut, and any animal fats, bacon fat, tallow, lard, uh, butter. Butter is delicious and the most... Uh, and avoid fake butters, margarine, all that stuff. I really try to get people away from. Yeah, I remember when I was getting my degree in nutrition, um, plant sterols, like so the margarine and things like that were just the rage. Um, and now I just like cringe walking through the yeah. walking uh, through the grocery store because when you look at the the ingredients, it's it's canola oil, it's soybean oil, it's these oils, and they're pervasive in the processed food industry. 
one thing I learned this, we, my family went on spring break recently to Maui and my husband and I went on a, a chocolate tour of this cacao farm and we're on this tour and they're showing us how they hand harvest the cacao uh, beans and they, you know, ferment them under banana leaves. And then they showed us this jar of these cacao. And what happens is the cocoa butter, when they kind of chop it up into nibs, the cocoa butter starts coming out, which is, which is a, a plant fat. It's actually really high in stearic acid, but they told us that um, the commercial chocolate factories in the United States of America, you know what they do? They pull the cacao butter out of the chocolate and they sell it to the cosmetic industry, right? Because everyone wants to put cocoa butter on their skin. Yeah, yeah. And they and they replace it with vegetable oil. So all the chocolate candy bars that you eat at Halloween, it is yeah, vegetable, vegetable oil and sugar. It's like, it's not even real chocolate. They take the cacao butter out of there. I mean, I sugar like, is like number one or two ingredient. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Insane. It's, it's funny you mentioned that it's because like, I went to a local store to get uh, uh, cacao butter to make my own chocolate. I was kind of wanted to experiment. I went to Paris and I was in love with the chocolate there. I said, let me try yeah. to make my own clean several ingredients. Uh, I couldn't find the cacao butter and they led me to the beauty section and I lotion aisle yeah, so it was basically pieces of cacao butter in the in a weird location like, hmm, that makes sense now <laughs> yeah it's just i was i was like wow that's just yeah. crazy because they can make more money by selling the cacao butter to the cosmetic industry to rub on your skin instead of eating um yeah i mean i'm with you i think that you know what it does is it changes the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. It makes it pro-inflammatory. You heat them, you, you eat fried food with them, so they're easily oxidized. Yeah, I mean, I think inherently polyunsaturated fats, you know, from a walnut or from a whatever, they're not, they're not that bad. But I think it's just that we eat less seafood, we eat less omega-3s, we added these omega-6s in, and it just starts to create this really horrible imbalance. And, and I tell people, even if it doesn't hurt you, let's say it doesn't hurt you, but removing seed oils, you basically remove all junk food and processed food. So, because it's an ingredient in, in anything right. processed. So that's another way to remove it. Uh, so even mayonnaise, I, I tell them <laughs> just change that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even if you look at the one that says like avocado oil, mayonnaise, oh no, no, no. Turn it around. No, it's yeah. probably like, they put it's made 50, with 50 an avocado and then like yeah. another 50% soybean oil. Oh yeah. They're always looking for cheaper ingredients to put in there, cheap. but they just I'm slap sure. these pretty labels. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this whole plant-based movement? Cause I feel like in medicine, um, that's what I hear. Patients are like, my doctor says to eat a plant-based diet. I don't even know what that means, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out, but it looks like a common theme. I don't think they know what it means when the doctor's so I had a patient that had a colonoscopy and they had polyps. They tell them, don't eat red meat, eat more plants. If they have yeah. heart disease, they tell them that. If they have diabetes, they tell them, don't eat meat. I was like, do you even know what sugar, I mean, how are you going to raise your sugar eating meat versus not eating the carbohydrates? So it seems like a, just a common advice for whatever the condition is and uh, move people away from uh, animal protein. I don't know if they, I don't think the doctor know, they think they mean well, but uh, I think the agenda behind it, whatever organizations behind it is really driving this uh, twofold. One, false data that's based on epidemiology. It doesn't really correlation and causation and what they eat. It's really terrible. There's no ran good randomized trials that would tell you uh, meat is unhealthy. The other thing, I forgot who said it, but an, an Asian food cannot be caused 
of modern diseases. So I really don't believe that something was eaten with problem thousands and thousands of years of suddenly causing us uh, to be sick. Um, and cancer is known to be uh, fueled by sugar, insulin, hyperinsulin state. Uh, you know, when you look at statistics, diabetes, obesity, all that stuff is the odds ratio of uh, getting cancer, heart disease is uh, many, many times fold higher than uh, any particular like food or anything like that. So I'd, I think it's all bad advice. And um, unfortunately, uh, they're hurting the patients by giving that advice. Now, can you be plant-based and healthy? Yes, but most people aren't. Uh, I think if you eat a whole food plant-based diet and you choose to, to that lifestyle, it's doable. It's just uh, very hard to stick to the macros and getting enough nutrients, bioavailable nutrients. So the protein in the plant is not as bioavailable. The vitamins in the plants are not as bioavailable. You miss some vitamins. So uh, people who want to do it, I tell them it's, it's you can be healthy. I'm just not the right person for you to advise you. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I have a huge problem with it because as an OBGYN, you know, people who want to get pregnant, I'm not saying yeah. you can't, you'd be quote unquote plant-based, whatever that means. It's not vegan vegetarian, but it's somehow like that. Um, there are a lack of nutrients. I mean, people think when you eat the rainbow that you're getting this plethora of nutrients, but the bioavailability of these things is much less. And when you look at the nutrients required in a pregnancy, the amount of grains and carbohydrates that you would have to eat to get that amount of nutrients is at the cost of more calories. And yeah. I mean, calories do matter. I'm not going to say it's that it's that calories in calories out is, right, right. is not a thing. It is, but I just think it's not the most optimal way to, to achieve, you know, good metabolic health, but. And you see the gestational diabetes. That's and, my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, yeah, again, yeah. we're entitled to our opinion and I agree with you. And when I see uh, or hear a pregnant woman who gained 50, 80 pounds or get gestational diabetes, I have a hard time believing that's just because it's a pregnancy. I think a lot to do, yes, hormonal, but the, the diet is fueling that. Uh, you're already in an insulin resistant state as a pregnant yeah. woman naturally to, to have things go to the uh, baby, but then you make yep. things worse. How I like to think of it is, listen, like uh, in the three little pigs, the wolf is going to come and he is going to blow your house down. And if your house is built of, of uh, you know, hay or rocks or paper or bricks, it's going to make a difference. So, you know, there's always some level of susceptibility. You know, uh, we know that even just in the offspring of these women, but uh, yeah, the, the metabolic health coming into pregnancy really sets the stage for, for the bad outcomes that can sometimes happen. So let's talk, let's talk about kids for, for mm -hmm. a second. I saw a post of yours on Instagram, just trashing kids menus and, Oh my God, I read recently that childhood obesity rates are almost like 20% yeah. in the United States. Did you, um, you were internal medicine. I mean, did you see kids in the hospital or? Uh, no, it wasn't a pediatric hospital. So I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with, uh, in medical school a little bit when I was on a pediatric rotation, but generally yeah. no, but you don't need to, you just go to any restaurant or coffee shop or uh, playground. You can see the kids uh, these days are not healthy looking. And they're overweight and a lot of them are on their iPads and they're eating junk food. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've got three kids of my own and you go and like the kids menu, it's like three ninety nine. you know, there's a reason it's cheap because yeah, it's yeah. mostly 
pasta. It's like spaghetti, mac and cheese, chicken fingers, you know, Just chicken carb nuggets. overload. Car- carb overload yeah. and zero overload. Uh, there's zero nutrients. I forgot what the... Uh, I think statistics, I think it's 66% of calories for kids and adolescents coming from junk food. That's scary. Uh, I read it several times. Uh, I didn't go to the source, but I think some report that uh, said that. And you, I believe it. I mean, whether it's, and parents sometimes mean well when they, you know, give them juice and chocolate milk and, uh, you know, all Well, all that's that the thing. Of- you get a kid's meal and it's like an alternative to the French fries is like yogurt or oranges, but then you get the yogurt and it's this, sugar fortified strawberry yogurt or you get the oranges and it's mandarin oranges in high fructose corn syrup it's it's like (laughs) but you think it's healthier because they're eating oranges and they're eating fruit or they're eating strawberry yogurt and then add the chocolate milk or the apple juice or like whatever it is it's insane and fatty liver and diabetes type 2 diabetes is as young as three years old uh you know that's been happening yeah, and now it should we're be an emergency. Like a, yeah. Now we're seeing you know recommendations for GLP one medications or gastric yeah. bypass surgery <laughs> as primary yeah. for for children. I can't believe they say it with a straight face and as if like, I mean, how can they even think that's okay? Yeah, know. it's it's scary. It's scary because you know uh, when you look at these graphs, I, the the people I can't put them up on my, my screen right now. But when you look at these graphs that so work, just so you guys know, we're shifting into the semen analysis now, because I pulled this, um, I was trying to find the most recent data. Cause I had heard recently that the childhood obesity rates were basically nearing 20%, which was, which was mind blowing to me, but of course at the same time, not surprising. Uh, but this was written up in the global pediatric health journal and it's titled childhood adolescent obesity in the United States, a public health concern. But what's crazy is when you look at the breakdown of the children, even kids as young as, I mean, we're talking, they're saying school-age children. So even like six-year-olds, 18.4% rate of obesity. Two to five-year-olds, they're not even in school, 13.9% obesity. Um, But when you look at the graphs over time as to when did childhood obesity start to become a problem? It mimics the adult data, which is in the 1980s when the United States Dietary Guidelines came out. And if you follow me on social media recently, I shared the USDA, the largest funding comes from some of the biggest food manufacturers in the United States. And it was around that time that we vilified fat. So we pulled saturated fat out. We told people to eat low fat diets. We started increasing plant fats in the diet if there was any. But what we did is we just replaced all those calories with carbohydrates, six six to 11 grains per day. You guys know what that food pyramid looked like. It was right at the bottom, six to 11 grains per day. And um, and it's not slowing down. And, uh, you know, we're eating less red meat than we were back then. And we're seeing more cancer and more diabetes and more obesity. So people really need to open their eyes to this conversation because my personal opinion, and I don't know what yours is, but we have to start to take self-accountability. And then once we figure it out for ourselves, we need to address our family, our family unit. It has to start at home. It has to start within the family because our healthcare system is not going to fix these. Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time, your health 
is your responsibility, 100%. Um, nobody's going to come save you. I mean, if anything, people, doctors blame patients for non-compliance where they may be compliant, just with the wrong advice. Sure, some patients are non-compliant, but uh, I think, yes, uh, you got to look at, you got to put your oxygen on first, fix your own health, uh, look at your family, uh, take care of them. You really have to change the structure. We're turning kids into addicts. When, when kids throw tantrums and uh, they, they won't eat real food, they just want the junk food, uh, that's our own doing. Uh, kids, uh, unless you introduce them to sugar, they, that wouldn't happen. And then I, you look at the restaurants in the morning, like there's no protein, there's no whole foods. There's just a bunch of carbohydrates and sugar and pancakes and syrups and juices. I mean, and no wonder kids have uh, tantrum issues, have ADHD, have uh, all kinds of behavioral issues. It is a healthcare crisis, not a concern, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, a mental health crisis amongst our youth too, and and um, we know people with diabetes and obesity. They have more depression. They have more anxiety. Metabolic disease is not just obesity and diabetes. I love uh, you guys. Go listen to my episode with Chris Palmer that we recently mm -hmm. had on his new book called Brain Health. I think that is the next wave of of where we really need to focus our attention, you know, on, on mental health as a metabolic disease. I know myself, you know, going through this, when I had hypothyroidism and prediabetes all related to my insulin resistance. I mean, I was, I had real bad postpartum depression. I mean, my one hour glucose test in my second pregnancy was over 200, wow. you know, like how do you take care of a new baby when your blood sugars are horrible and you're using tons of insulin and I mean how can you possibly feel you know good how can you possibly feel motivated to go work out and you know do stuff with your kids like the the consequences and the ripple effect within your life of just eating a poor diet is it's widespread it's, it's, it affects it's every area of your life yeah 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 I mean I tell yeah. people it's hard to be healthy it's hard to be unhealthy so might as well be healthy. Uh, you know, it's hard at first. You got to have to be conscious. And when you wake up and see the change in your health, you really change and it's never, you never go back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Drews, this has been just a really fun conversation. Obviously, awesome. uh, you know, I am a huge fan of, of what you do. Tell people where they can find you or where they can work with you because I know you're working, you know, with patients one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one yeah. now. Yeah, I'm on the Twitter uh, handle Elijah Rouge MD, and I'm on Instagram Elijah Eli underscore Jarouge. I'm not on Facebook. I have a private account I don't use. I can't handle too many social media. Uh, I have a website, <laughs> uh, metabolichealthmd.com. Uh, if you, you can schedule a, a discovery call free if you are interested in working with me one-on-one. -on -one. I focus on weight issues, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, I just want people to know that it doesn't matter how long you've had diabetes, obesity, or any chronic disease. If you're not dead, it's never too late. I've had people on insulin for 20 years come off medications within a few months. So it's really... Uh, doable. You just have to believe it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, this has been incredible. And, you know, for the listeners out there, if you got into this part of the podcast, thank you for listening to the entire thing. But please share this episode with somebody. Share this episode with somebody who needs help. Um, because this information is not widely available. And the conversation that we had today 
um, is not happening in the clinic rooms. <laughs> it's just, it's not. And it's going to take each and every one of us to, to push back, to push back against, you know, the, the agenda that's happening right now, uh, because it's, it's our lives and it's our health. And at the end of the day, I, I agree with you. The only thing you can't fix is death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. uh, it's very true. All right. Well, thank you guys right. for listening. We will catch you on the next episode. Did you guys love that last episode of the Fit and Fabulous podcast? Well, of course you did. And I want to keep bringing you the most amazing content from the most incredible people. And you can help me by subscribing to the Dr. Fit and Fabulous channel. You guys know where the button is. Just click it. It's the doctor's orders.